Jeremy. Let's, uh, let's ask God's help as we uh, think about the passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, its variety, for the way in which you proclaim truth in different genres, different styles. We thank you for the prophets and for the prophet Zechariah that we're going to spend some time with in the coming weeks. We pray, Father, that you would uh, instruct us, encourage us, correct us, and that we would know that we have encountered the living God through his word as a result of the time we spend together now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we finished a sermon series in Luke's Gospel, uh, looking at meals with Jesus. And this week, uh, to use a catchphrase from the 1970s British comedy show, Monty Python's Flying Circus, now for something completely different. Listening to the reading of uh, the first chapter of Zechariah, as Jeremy just read it for us, might have left us feeling like we're in a very, very different world with its visions and its horses, its horns, its craftsmen. But believe it or not, there is a connection from where we were last week to where we are today. Last week, our final passage in the Meals with Jesus series was in Luke 24, Jesus after his resurrection, walking on the road to Emmaus with two travelers. As we saw last week, these two initially were clueless to the identity of their traveling companion. They had no idea that they're walking with the risen Jesus. And so Luke tells us that while still incognito, Jesus enters into a Bible study with them to enable them to understand the events of the previous few days, his death, his resurrection. And here's how Luke described the beginning, the, the nature of this Bible study. Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, many have wondered over the years, uh, what did Jesus's class syllabus look like that particular day? And there are quite a few Old Testament passages that are strong candidates for what would have been discussed on that Sunday afternoon walk from Genesis, Leviticus, Psalms, Isaiah, to name a few. But an Old Testament book that is perhaps often overlooked in that list would be this one, the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament that make up the last dozen books of our Old Testament. It's the longest of the minor prophets, running to 14 chapters. But here is perhaps what is most surprising and not that well known about Zechariah, that after the book of Psalms, Zechariah is the most quoted or alluded to Old Testament book in the Gospels. That is, if you exclude Psalms, Zechariah is referenced more frequently in the Gospels than any other Old Testament book. In fact, if you take the whole New Testament, it's referenced about 70 times. So it seems highly likely that Jesus would have directed the attention of his two walking companions to this very book on that first resurrection afternoon. Now that said, as you may have picked up in the reading, Zechariah is not the easiest of books, which is perhaps why many of us haven't spent an awful lot of time in it. Here's how one commentator put it. Zechariah is the longest and most obscure of all the minor prophets and the most difficult of any of the Old Testament books to interpret. One should approach it with prayer and humility, acknowledging his own limitations and knowing that he cannot afford to be dogmatic. 
So we're going into this with a lot of prayer, a lot of humility, but you're smart people. You've worked your way through Leviticus and Daniel and parts of Revelation. You can do this as we spend uh, these coming weeks up through Easter working our way through this book. It's a book that's made up of a series of eight visions, two sermons, and two oracles delivered by a prophet whose task was to bring comforting words to God's people who were disillusioned, disappointed, and just a bit fed up. Here were people struggling to follow God when everything seemed to be against them, feeling crushed by their own difficulties, couldn't see the larger plan of God that he had for the world. Here were believers who desperately needed to see a bigger vision, bigger picture of God's character and purposes to put their own struggles in context. But here's why it's a good time for us to be studying Zechariah over the coming weeks, because all the things I've just said about God's people then could be said about God's people today. So my prayer is that the risen and ascended Lord is going to come alongside us by his spirit in these coming weeks, as he did with those two Emmaus-bound travelers that he might teach us directly and personally from this somewhat neglected book of the Old Testament. We're going to look at the first chapter this morning, uh, which lays this out for us. Here's today's sermon in a sentence, that God responds with undeserved and overwhelming mercy to those who repent of their sins. I'm going to think about this under three headings, the call to return, firstly, secondly, the Lord of angel armies, and thirdly, the reversal of power. God responds with undeserved and overwhelming mercy to those who repent of their sins. So first, the call to return. Zechariah sets our bearings for us as he opens uh, this book with these words for chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying. Now, right away, we're confronted with the fact that things are not as they should be for the people of God. While earlier prophetic books in the Old Testament are dated with reference to the reigns of kings in Israel and Judah, Zechariah dates his with reference to a foreign king a man called Darius, who's the ruler of the Persian Empire. And here's why he does that. The year that we're beginning here in this book is 520 BC. Roughly 20 years earlier, some of God's people had started dribbling back to the promised land after 70 years of exile in Babylon. But when they returned home, things were far from optimal. If any of you have ever seen the 1991 film Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with Kevin Costner, the beginning of the film, uh, Robin returns back to England, having escaped from the Turks during the Crusades, expecting to find rest from his troubles at home, only to find new problems at home. And the Israelites' experience returning from exile was not dissimilar to that. Babylon had fallen to Persia, such that they were now able to return home, but they do not return to political freedom. Darius the king is not an Israelite king. God's people do not have on the throne a descendant of David. And so I imagine there was something of relief, indeed maybe even some rejoicing at being back in the land, but even under those circumstances. But now, beginning of Zechariah, 20 years on, Any novelty of returning to the land of their ancestors to rebuild this great kingdom, 
any novelty has worn off. The population at this point is 3% of what it had been under King Solomon. Most of the land of Judah had been renamed by their occupiers, Yehud. The Jewish calendar had been abolished and replaced by a foreign one. And those who had come back from Babylon looked down their noses at those who had never left. Those who had never left were suspicious of all these people coming back with a Babylonian twang to their accent. According to Zechariah, the prophet Haggai, whose book is right before Zechariah, the people were also facing material destitution, poverty, drought. And then to add insult to injury, the rebuilding work of the temple had stalled. With only the basement completed, the builders had essentially given up some 10 years earlier. Things were not looking very rosy in 520 BC. But it's at this point that the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Zechariah, as we read in verses 2 to 4. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Zechariah begins with his message with a history lesson, a sobering history lesson, summing up 700 years of Israel's history in one short sentence, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Zechariah starts here because it explained to the people why they were in the state they were in. This was not an accident. Their exile had been judgment from God. Even their present circumstances were judgment upon them. Why? Zechariah is explicit. It's because they had not listened to God. They had not paid attention to him. They had not obeyed him. And so God's command is very straightforward to them, but deeply instructive to his people. Return to me, and I will return to you. Return to me, and I will return to you. Now, you can imagine the hearers of these opening words of Zachariah's message turning to each other somewhat quizzically and saying, what's he going on about? We have returned. We're here. But God's point through Zachariah was, no, you actually haven't. You may be back in the land, but you haven't yet come home to me. So Zachariah's call is for those who had returned physically to return all over again, but properly, to return home to God. Their exile had been caused by their sin, but the problem of their sin had not yet been dealt with. The people of God wanted God to return to them to undertake a rebuilding project by which he might once again dwell in their midst. If they wanted to see the coming of the kingdom of God, they needed to first return to him. They needed to repent. Zechariah's call to the people is a reminder to us that the real distance between us and God is never really a matter of geography. It's a matter of psychology and spiritual cardiology. Our minds and our hearts can be far from God even when we might be in the right place physically. You and I can think that because we're sitting here on a Sunday morning, 
or for those of you who are sitting at home watching us sitting here in a church building on a Sunday morning, or when you're in a Bible study or something similar, that as a result, we're somehow closer to God, that he's Im- impressed with our efforts that we've made it out this morning, that we're some- we've somehow scored some brownie points with God that- because we're here. But the reality may be for some of us, however, that we've not really yet come home properly to God. We've not really repented of our sin and our rebellion and our pride, or perhaps we did once upon a time in the past, but now we figure, well, I've done that in the past, I'm a Christian now, and so I'm good. I don't need to do any kind of self-examination anymore, identify sin patterns in my life, repent before God. Some of us might even try to hide behind the excuse, well, this is the Old Testament, It's all about God's anger and his judgment and the need to return and the need to repent. Well, granted, we are not living in the province of Yehud in 520 BC. God hasn't just sent us a spokesman called Zechariah to bring us a message. No, he hasn't sent us a spokesman. He's actually now sent us his son with the same message. Jesus his son began his ministry. Mark 1, verse 15, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, return, and believe in the gospel. Jesus says, repent, come home to God and believe the good news. Or Jesus words the invitation slightly differently in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, these familiar words for some of us. Come to me, come home to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I know that many of you have read and greatly benefited from Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, uh, which draws its title from these verses. Listen to what Dane Ortland says about these particular verses. He says, his yoke is kind and his burden is light. That is, his yoke is a non-yoke, and his burden is a non-burden. What helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us in our place of need. He lives out of our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It's what gets him out of bed in the morning. This is who he is. It's his very heart. Jesus himself has said so. Jesus' call is essentially the same as Zachariah's call. Come home. Return. Return by listening to my word, obeying my word, running into my waiting arms. So this call to return in verses 1 to 6 in the first chapter really is the overall heading of the entire book. Verse 6, we're told the people here, they repent. Literally, they return to God as he commanded. And then in verse 7, Zechariah moves us into this series of eight visions that run all the way through chapter 6 and which lay out for us how God is going in response to their repentance to return to his people and come home to them. These visions all take place during one sleepless night for Zechariah while he's awake the whole night, well, apart from one point where he falls asleep in chapter 4, but the angel quickly wakes him up. We'll see that when we get there. But we're going to look at the first two visions here, the first of which focuses our attention on our second point, 
which is the Lord of angel armies. Look with me at how the vision begins, verses 7 to 10. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Here is Zechariah's first vision. Uh, he sees an angel actually described in the following verse, verse 11, as the angel of the Lord. And we're told this angel is riding a red horse. Now, just a little sidebar here. Most of the translations here refer to the horse as red, which, to be honest, seems to me to make it all seem a bit weird, almost like a, something from an episode of My Little Pony. You've got a little red horse over here. But red should almost certainly here be translated as chestnut. In other words, this isn't a weird horse with an unusual color. The big point in this vision is not the color of the horses, as we're about to see. Zechariah asks a second angel who will serve as the explaining angel through all the visions, what are these, my Lord? The obvious answer would be, well, they're horses, but the angel seems to want to go a bit deeper than that and explains that they and their angelic riders were those who had been sent out on mission by God to survey the entire earth. Now, what's interesting here is that the Persians were famous for their mounted patrols of secret agents, of intelligence officers who ranged far and wide over the empire to keep their eyes out for any rebelling nations. In fact, many people believe that these Persian horsemen were the inspiration for J.R.R. Tolkien's ring wraiths, the Nazgul, the Black Riders, in Lord of the Rings. The Persian Empire was the largest empire that the world had known up to this point. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus described a royal road that the Persians had built that ran from the capital of Persia in Susa in the east to all the way to western uh, Turkey, uh, uh, measured 1,700 miles. It's a stunning feat of engineering for that time. But it was still a road that took at three months for a caravan to travel from one end to the other. However, these Persian intelligence agents riding on their horses could cover that distance with changing horses and using rest houses. They could cover that in a single week. They could turn up anywhere in the empire at short notice, evaluate what they saw was going on, and if they didn't like what they saw, they'd report back to Central HQ Persia, and the next thing you knew, there would be a Persian army marching on your doorstep. So you can imagine the fear that you would have felt as an Israelite seeing these Persian horse riders on the horizon. What if they sent a bad report back, and the next thing you knew, you were being sent into exile a second time? Visits of these horse riders were a constant reminder that you weren't free, that you were still under the power of an occupying foreign ruler. But then consider what Zechariah is being shown by the Lord. God, God has his own secret agents, his own reconnaissance ministry of angels. In fact, that's what's behind this frequent repetition in this chapter of God being referred to as 
the Lord of hosts. Did you notice that? How often that kept coming up, especially in the opening six verses? The title actually appears 53 times through this whole book, which would suggest that Zechariah wants us to pay close attention to this name. More literally, the name is the Lord Sabaoth. If that sounds somewhat familiar, it's because Martin Luther used those words in reference to Jesus in his famous hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God. Second verse, you ask who that may be, Christ Jesus. It is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Now, our translation, the ESV translation, Lord of hosts, is, is a helpful one, however, because hosts in the Bible is the normal term for armies. And God reminds Zechariah, who reminds us that as God's people, we have the Lord of armies on our side, the Lord of heavenly armies, the Lord of angel armies. And that's such an encouraging truth to be reminded of that it's, it's actually somewhat surprising that you don't find the name all the way throughout the, the whole Old Testament. In fact, it's, it's nowhere in the early books of the Bible you find it in dribs and drabs in Samuel and in Kings, and then it starts to appear frequently in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and here in the last three books of the Old Testament. And the reason for its frequent mention by the prophets was because of the desperate needs of the Israelites by this time. In Isaiah's day, it was the, it was the problem of the Assyrian army defeating Israel's army. In Jeremiah's time, it was the Babylonian army defeating their army. And now in Zechariah's time, the problem was that Israel has no army. They're a subject province in, a, in the Persian empire. But Zechariah says, oh, but you do have an army, a heavenly angelic army led by the Lord of hosts, and there's no stronger, mightier army around. And it's from this angel army that these secret agents have been sent out by God. And in verse 11, the agent, agent, agents bring back their report. They answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? Finally, some good news in Zechariah 1. Peace on earth. That's what we all yearn for. That's what our, it's on our Christmas cards every year. Except it's not good news. It's not good news for God's people who are certainly not at rest here, who are in distress, who are under the yoke of Persian oppression. This rest that the agents speak of, this peace, was an illegitimate peace resting on the backs of oppressed people. The nations may have been at rest, but Zechariah is about to find out that God himself was most restless restless to establish his honor and his glory among his people again. So look at verses 12 to 17. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked, who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are, are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. 
So the angel of the Lord turns from being a messenger to being an advocate as he pleads to the Lord for mercy for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. And in response, God speaks words of grace and comfort, words that Zechariah is to proclaim, that God may have been angry with his people, but they are still his people. And he's, but he's exceedingly angry with those nations whom, yes, he had used to judge Israel in exile, but now who had gone beyond what they were supposed to do, who had furthered the disaster, who had thrown gasoline on the fire and had plundered Israel. And so God says, here's what I'm going to do. I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy and we're starting over. My house will be built. My cities will again be overwhelmed with prosperity and I will again comfort my people Zion. It's hard to imagine the depth of comfort those words must have been to Zachariah's audience. Because all of us know, a word of hope changes everything. That's the way hope works. And here, they, here God has not abandoned them. God was committing himself to a building project on their behalf. Such was the commitment of the Lord of hosts to his people. Which brings us briefly to the second vision and our third point, uh, the reframing of power. Look at verses 18 to 21. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So Zechariah sees four horns. These horns were symbols of power. That's why we're scared of a bull and not of a cow, right? Because the bull has horns. Horns in the vision represent here the powerful nations that had subjugated and and subdued and scattered God's people. And God's going to terrify those nations. He's going to overpower them. He's going to defeat them. How? Through four craftsmen, four tradesmen. It's the same word used for those who constructed the original temple that had been destroyed. People look for power and military might and numerical supremacy and political power. But here we see real power paradoxically exists in the rebuilding of the temple, God's house, represented here by these tradesmen, by these carpenters. And what we're going to see in upcoming weeks is that the rebuilding of this physical temple at the time of Zechariah was just the first step for God to build a greater temple, the true temple. The true temple who, get this, was a carpenter. In John 2, Jesus tells the Jews who were questioning him, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, John 2, 19. And John, the writer of the gospel, makes sure that we know exactly what Jesus was referring to when he writes this, that when he says Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the temple. But that's not the end of the temple story in the New Testament, because in Ephesians 2, then the apostle Paul writes these words, building on what Jesus had said, writes these words to the church, to all who have put their trust in this carpenter temple called Jesus. 
Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so as God's people, we become the temple. We're the temple. We're the fulfillment of the temple promised by God to Zechariah. And that's still not the end of the temple story in the New Testament. But I don't want to give it all away in week one, so we'll just have to wait for that later. But here's what I do want us to see this week. That God's coming home to his people is ultimately, of course, through his son, Jesus whose message was that weak and broken people, just like those in Zachariah's day, just like those in our day, can find restoration and comfort, forgiveness and freedom and life in him. Because this carpenter came and broke the ultimate horns of power, the power of sin and darkness, the horns of hell and death, by triumphing over them on a cross, it was the reframing of power like the world had never seen and the world has never seen since. God responds with undeserved and overwhelming mercy to those who repent of their sins, to those who return to him. It struck me this week that Zachariah's generation wasn't really particularly bad. They weren't seemingly guilty of idolatry like their forefathers. The exile seemed to have cured them of that. They aren't described as being sexually immoral or murderers and the like. So the question is, what, well, what was their sin from which they needed to return? And I think it was that they were indifferent. They were detached. They were apathetic. The Lord of hosts had essentially reconfigured the entire political landscape of the ancient Near East to get them back to Jerusalem to restore his name and his reputation and his temple, and they couldn't be bothered to do anything about it. And I wonder if that might be God's particular word to us today. As far as I can tell, PCKS, the EPC, we're not rotten to the core with immorality and idolatry. But God has reconfigured all of history to bring his son into this world. And some of us are just kind of in the comfort zone. Perhaps just a little indifferent, perhaps lacking passion for God and his kingdom, perhaps unwilling to take risks for him. And to such people, God says, return to me, and I'll return to you. And to those who return, God has shown that he responds with undeserved and overwhelming grace and mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord of hosts, we praise you and thank you for your commitment to your people for your presence with us, your protection of us, your desire to be in relationship with us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your invitation to come to you and find rest, true rest. Lord, what a great God you are. 
What a faithful God you are. How merciful and gracious to us in ways that we simply do not deserve. But as you have revealed a little bit more of who you are to us today, may that make all the difference in how we live our lives this week, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Respond.